This is episode 4-9 of Free as in Freedom. Karen Sandler. And I'm Bradley Kuhn. This is Freeze and Freedom. Well, now we sound like Linux Outlaws. I hear, we hear chairs moving at the beginning and that sort of thing. <laughs> Not that we don't always have background noise, but Linux Outlaws has a thing sort of like that. that they always are still getting set up as they start recording. That's funny. So um, so, so this is uh, finally pushing through those FOSDEM talks. We've been trying to do that with a few episodes. Most of the feedback we've gotten has been uh, pretty positive on, on having them. Yeah, everybody seems to agree with my analysis, which was that these are the recordings that aren't well known. Uh, whether we do the 2014 one, some people did ask for our commentary. Yeah. Um, somebody suggested we do an episode ahead of time and tell people, make sure to have listened to Gone and Watch oh, This Talk. right, right, right. Yeah. I, I, I think that was Jason Self who suggested that, but maybe it was somebody else. Uh, if it was somebody else, they'll write in and tell me I credited the wrong person, which is fine. <laughs> um, I, I'm outsourcing reading my email now. Um, <laughs> or remembering what's in my email, I guess I should say. Because um, I did read it. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's... Uh, but these are the, still the 2013 ones. So, the, uh, the, so this talk is, is relatively old, right? So it's, it's almost and yet, it's a year and a half. it's still so relevant. Well, yeah. I, I mean, I think I think that... that uh, so Aaron... So, so just to give you a little bit of background on this, um, Aaron and I sort of started the Replicant Project. Uh, we didn't do very okay, much Okay, so work. the talk is by Aaron Williamson, oh, sorry, yeah, who, yeah. Uh, who was a lawyer at the Software Freedom Law Center. He kind of started his legal career there um, when we were there. And uh, he then went in, was a lawyer for IEEE, and is now in his own practice. And he gave well, a talk. Uh, he's a partner in a small law firm um, called Tor Eklund. Sorry. Right. And he gave a talk about in FOSDEM 2013, back in February 2013, about the issue of mobile phones not having, uh, not, not, not being mostly free software, or they're not being really a, a mobile device that truly respects uh, users' software freedom. And Historically, this was an, inter an interest of his. We, he and I sort of started the Replicant Project. He actually did what was the first build for the HC Dream, which was the thing that basically I'm still running. I just use the same process uh, with CyanogenMod that he used with the Google firmware, which is just yank out all the stuff that was obviously proprietary and repackage the firmware. I mean, that was sort of the first <laughs> first step to Replicant of mm. what, what do we actually have this free software? Uh, and he actually did that first build. I think you ran that build until yep, you until replaced that recently. phone we talked about in a previous yeah. episode, how you replaced your phone mm -hmm. um, but yeah he he uh, he did that build and I still I still run I don't actually run replicant I still run a cyanogen mod that I did the same thing with mm. just yanked it out by hand um, rather than using the replicant but which is unfortunate because I don't see the replicant little logo and stuff mm -hmm. right boots I like um, the replicant logo but uh, the the um, the, the the issue of whether we have free software on phones, the, the issues have stayed the same. That's the interesting part. Everything's gotten a little bit worse, but pretty much everything he says in the talk, I think, is still accurate. Okay, well, we'll talk about it when we're okay. so listen so, to the talk. And so we'll I, I mean, I think even so. I guess my point was before they started is even though it's old, I think m most of what's said is still accurate and current. Even I think it's so been too. A year and a, been a year and a half, two years almost. So here you go. So um, I guess if you are in this room and you work on a project or work for a company that makes a free software smartphone, I guess consider yourself trolled uh, by the title of this talk. Um, so uh, as Bradley said, this is something that uh, a question that I've been interested in um, ever since the open moco exploded onto the scene and, and changed the world. Um, short, shortly, shortly thereafter, of course, the iPhone um, was introduced and uh, gave people a phone that, that was really, really interesting and, and that worked. Um, and, and so uh, I, I sort of got concerned at that time, as I think a lot of us did, that, that um, we were entering an entire new era uh, in free software where we had a whole new hardware architecture that was completely closed off to us and that was not made on free software. 
Um, and so I think a lot of us got really excited when Android um, came out, and we, or when Google announced Android, and we, you know, finally had hope again that we were going to have a free software mobile operating system. Um, and and as Bradley said, I you know um, when that happened, I bought an early Android developer phone, and I was making my own Android builds and, and producing them for our office, so we could all have a free software smartphone to work from. Um, and and that was great. It was a really exciting time, and I'm sure that you know. I'd raise your hand if you're an Android user in this room. Great. So here we are, all are. Um, and and Android changed the world for the better, and it's and that's really good. But um, what I think I started to notice, and probably a lot of you have noticed uh, ever since those early days, is that you know. Though Android is an open source operating system, um, as deployed, Android is not necessarily open to you on your phone to modify and, and rebuild um, to your own ends. And uh, that's not because of Google, it's because uh, the handset manufacturers and the mobile carriers really don't, it's not in their interest to give you that freedom. And so here we are still with devices that um, without a, a certain amount of uh, skullduggery we're not actually allowed to produce free software operating systems for. Um, so uh, I was bothered by this and um, as anyone does when they're when they're bothered by a, a situation a, a dire software freedom situation I went to the Library of Congress um, in the United States and I went to the Library of Congress, this was last year, because in the United States we have a really bad law that you're all, I'm sure, very familiar with, uh, which is the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, uh, which says essentially that you can't circumvent uh, any techno technological protection measure that, that controls access to a copyrighted work. And my concern was that um, when carriers and handset man manufacturers were putting these restrictions on phones that were using technical restrictions to prevent you from rooting your phone and installing your own operating system that you know not only did that put technical barriers in front of developers but it actually arguably under this law would make it illegal in the United States for you to root your phone um, especially or or you know especially circumvent uh, say a bootloader lock and I didn't want to live in a world where it is actually illegal to exploit some security flaw on your phone because there's always one and um, and to root your phone. So every three years um, the Library of Congress holds uh, a rulemaking session that gives you exemptions or that, that where they can you can propose and they can approve exemptions to this law that would allow you for the next three years to do something that the law would ordinarily prevent you from doing. So um, as many of you probably know, the Electronic Frontier Foundation um, in 2009 uh, proposed and was granted an exemption for uh, rooting your smartphone in order to install unapproved applications. Uh, and that was really useful. And, uh, and at the time, the iPhone was sort of, you know, dominated the, the smartphone market. And so iPhone users were pleased that they were able to go to third-party sources for applications because Apple had a sort of, was ruling the, the iTunes store with an iron <laughs> fist. Um, but that exemption from 2009 didn't apply necessarily to installing your own operating system uh, or to replacing the operating system. So in 2012, that's what we wanted to do. We wanted to, you know, break freedom wide open on your phone. Um, now, it turned out the Electronic Frontier Foundation had the same idea. They proposed a new exemption in 2012 that would allow you not only to root your phone and, and put new applications on from third-party sources, but also to install a, a new operating system. And they proposed this exemption not only for phones, but also for uh, tablets and video game consoles. Um, and that's great. We agreed with all of that. Um, but uh, being the trolls we are, we decided to sort of troll the copyright office and say, well, if you can do that, why shouldn't you be able to uh, install the software of your choice on any device that you own? Um, basically, we <laughs> we proposed the software freedom exemption to the Digital Millennium Copyright Act that would allow you to just do whatever you want with any device that you own. Of course, uh, that sort of uh, undermines the whole purpose of the law, um, or at least you know 
makes it more or less moot. So they weren't, uh, as you can imagine, terribly uh, receptive to us. Um, but you know, in the background of all of this, and a big reason why we decided to go to the copyright office and request this exemption in the first place is that um, the you know Windows 8 uh, was you know coming out soon, and Microsoft had had recently or you know recently then um, announced re the new requirements. Sorry, yeah. Was the existing exemption sustained? Yes. So the exist the existing exemption was sustained. Actually, this. This was the result of the rulemaking process. Um, the EFF's exemption for smartphones, um, not only for installing your own applications, but for installing, you know, an operating system, was um, was granted. So, actually, the you know the freedom to root your smartphone to install new software was broadened in 2012. However, as you all probably heard, a separate exemption that would allow you to carry or unlock your uh, phone and, and take it from one carrier to another in the United States <coughs> was not sustained. It, it, it expired in 2012. And so now we are not, to the extent that the DMCA prevents you from, from rooting your phone for purposes of carry unlocking it, uh, you're no longer allowed to do that in the U.S. It's arguable whether or not it actually prevented you from doing that to begin with. Um, but anyway, the background to our, to our participation in this process was that Microsoft had had recently um, said and you know buried in a in a specification document for the for the logo program that if you ship Windows 8 on an ARM device, you uh, can't allow users to you have to use UEFI secure boot to prevent users from installing any operating system that is not Windows. Um, they had similar uh, terms regarding the Intel architecture and other architectures. But I guess just Intel. Um, but they, those those requirements um, always said, you know, the user must be able to uh, add new keys, install different operating systems. But on ARM, um, they they basically said there there can be no, you can't allow users to uh, install a different operating system besides Windows. And we were concerned about this. Uh, not because we were afraid that the Microsoft Surface was going to take over the world and that we were all going to be living in a world where you can only buy a Microsoft Surface tablet and we wouldn't be able to install free software on a tablet. That world, I think, is um, a, a distant uh, possibility, um, if that. But um, we also saw that manufacturers uh, were beginning to build Ultrabooks based on the ARM architecture and that Microsoft... Um, was partnering with uh, manufacturers to put Windows 8 on ARM Ultrabooks. And so um, that sort of suggests a, a scary future in which all of our laptops are built on ARM, have Windows pre-installed on them, and uh, do not permit you to install any other operating system. So whether that's really going to be an issue, um, we have yet to see. But that's still an issue because, of course, our exemption wasn't granted. Um, if Microsoft, you know, does <laughs> pulls a dirty trick in the next three years, then maybe we'll go back to the copyright office and say, "Look, the thing that you thought wasn't necessarily a possibility might be happening." But as it is, this is what actually came out of that process. Um, but I'm not so concerned. As I said, we didn't go into this process expecting really to win the software freedom exemption from the Digital Money and Copyright Act. Um, the process is a really broken process. The law is a really broken law. So um, one reason it's a broken law is that it starts from the wrong presumptions. That um, you know it doesn't care why you're trying to circumvent uh, a technological protection measure. It doesn't care that you might want to make a fair use of uh, the work, or that you might want to just install your own operating system and not modify Microsoft's operating system. It doesn't care what you want to do. It just says it's illegal. And then the safety valve for that is supposed to be this three-year cycle where you can propose exemptions to the law. But um, as we've seen, the th that three-year cycle um, doesn't really work out so well for us. Um, and and the idea that, that a legitimate use exemption <laughs> could expire after three years is, I think, pretty absurd. But this is a law that's built not for us, but for, for content owners. Um, you know, the bad kind. Um, so, 
Um, one of the reasons this process is so broken is um, the company that the Copyright Office keeps. Um, this year, we saw appointed to, as Associate Register of Copyright, basically second-in-command of the Copyright Office, which controls this process, um, an attorney from the Recording Industry Association of America who had led the charge against, or been involved again, uh, in the charge against LimeWire, etc. And um, exiting the Copyright Office this year was the, the guy who was sort of running the whole show when I was there giving my presentation, uh, David O. Carson, um, or David Carson, who was the general counsel um, and left for an international intellectual property uh, trade association. Um, and this is, so this is, it's a captured uh, process. It's a captured organization. So we can never expect to get too much out of that process. Um, but fortunately, um, I don't think we have to uh, necessarily rely on that process. I think that um, we're seeing some really uh, exciting efforts in the free software community to produce yet more mobile operating systems. And Android, I think, is going to become um, one of many. And I think that as that happens, we're going to see that though some phones are going to be locked down and uh, that some are not, and that we're going to have options in the market for a phone that we can put free software on. Um, and, and that's a really, that's a really great thing. So I, you know, I'm excited about all of these efforts and, you know, I hope to one day own one of these phones. Um, but the thing is that the fight for a free software mobile phone, uh, isn't the same thing as, or it doesn't have the same parameters as the fight for a free software desktop did 10 years ago. Um, we're no longer... Uh, living in a world, sorry, what's my next slide here? So yeah, so we're no longer living in a world where all of us are running or doing most of our computer, or all of our computing on our own computers um, locally on our laptops. We now live in a world where a significant proportion of us, a significant amount of the time, is using our browser to interface with web services to do a lot of what we do. Now that number is smaller in this room than it is possibly anywhere in the world, um, but it's it's still a significant number. All of us are using web services for something or another, and so um, having freedom on your phone and and yeah, sorry. And so the rest of the world is moving even further in that direction than we are um, using. Uh, I mean, there's even a laptop that you can get that is basically a browser because some people live their entire lives. Uh, in the browser and on web services. And we're not going to move away from that direction. We're, we are, all of us, moving further in that direction at some rate or another. Um, so uh, that, I think, means that you know, our, our smartphones look a lot more like, are going to continue looking a lot more like a browser than they are like a laptop, in that they're essentially a window to web services, and this is more true, I think, for our smartphones than, than, um, and, and by a significant degree, than it ever was for our laptops, because, um, you know, there's only so much that you can do with this particular interface, and and most of the applications, even if they're local applications, are interfacing with web services. So that's the world we live in, and I think Mozilla understood this very well. They understood. Not only that the free sub or the, that a mobile operating system is in many respects a browser, and they said, well, we can make that. We know how to make a browser. Um, but they also saw that, uh, that the desktop browser was becoming less and less relevant to people's lives. Um, more of us are using our phones and our tablets and other mobile devices more of the time. Um, and eventually, the desktop browser is going to be less a part of our lives, and and so I think Mozilla had to make this move, and and you know, good on Mozilla for for getting ahead of this trend. Um, but so this is the world, and I want to give a shout out to Chris Weber for when I I said, gosh, and now I need to make a graphic for this next slide because there's you know I can't just can't just use something that I stole off the internet, and he said, oh, do you want do you want a graphic? Um, so he just turns his tablet screen around and starts scribbling, and 
This is what he came up with, and it's fantastic. But this is the architecture of, of the future. Um, now, we're all obviously, again, more re rely more significantly on our personal computers than most people in the world. But we're also all moving toward this architecture, where we have a phone, and it's got some software on it, but it's mostly being used to interface with a computer somewhere. You know, Hopefully, for many of us, it's our own computers. Um, but it's a computer somewhere else. And for most people, it's not their computers. It, it is the cloud. Um, and that's okay. Free software is going to run this, and maybe top to bottom. And free software runs that cloud, at least that part right there inside the dotted line. Um, we built Linux and Apache and uh, OpenStack and... Uh, Python and most of what's running on there. It's just that little layer on the outside that's not free software. But uh, I think as, as more and more of us are realizing all the time, that is a really significant little layer outside the dotted line. It's uh, increasingly something that everybody else in the world is interfacing with daily, and we're trying to figure out how to deal with as a community. How, are we make, how do we make free software that lives in that area outside the dotted line? Um, but, and, and the other issue that we're, I think, concerned with as a community is the issue of centralization. This is also from uh, Chris's art. This is from the Media Gotland fundraising video. Um, thank you, Chris. I didn't credit you here, but I'll do it out loud. Um, but this is the issue with, with the architecture of the web that free software is coming to grips with right now. That uh, rather than, you know, all of us controlling the software that we're running ourselves and interfacing with one another through uh, sort of accepted interfaces, we're all going out to central services and, uh, and connecting to those and doing more and more of our computing there. This is what Richard Stallman is very, very concerned about and says you should not do. Um, but we like doing this because it's, it's really, really useful. Right? And it's even useful for things to be centralized, right? So on a social network, the reason why it's been really hard for free software to build social network that competes with Facebook is that having all your friends in one place is super convenient. There's a network effect there that is not only good for Facebook because they want to advertise to you and collect all the information they can on you, but because you, you want to be able to talk to your friends and they're all in one place. So centralization has really, really important benefits. Um, centralized search is something that is essentially necessary. It's really hard to do something like what Google does in a distributed way. But centralization also has, you know, very well-known consequences for uh, all of us users. One of which, um, again illustrated by Chris, is that it creates a, a central point of, of control and uh, it makes it a lot easier to find you. Um, so, uh, if, say, what is next? Um, <laughs> we're not ready for Mark yet. Um, so, um, yeah, so if, if your government wants to find out what you're doing, they, you know, they know where you live. You live on Facebook, you live on Twitter, um, you live in Google services. Um, they can go to one place and get a lot of data in one way or another, whether that's by friending you or subpoenaing, subpoenaing the uh, service provider or whatever, you're a lot easier to find this way. And this is really good for Mark Zuckerberg because, um, you know, the more people he can collect in one place and the more of their interactions he gets to look at, then the better he can advertise to you because he knows not only what you're doing and what you like, what you like and what you like, and, but, you know, who you're talking to what your social interactions are like, and how people interact with one another on the network. So it's really useful for advertising, but it's also really useful for governments that want to control the people who are using the services who live in their countries. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's really easy to find someone, as I said, and so if you, uh, if you want to find somebody and, and stop them from taking down your, your government, then it can be really easy to do. And that's a problem. But your government doesn't have to be threatened with imminent uh, downfall 
in order for them to want to do this to you. This is a this is a graph from Google's United States Government Transparency Report. Um, I think it's uh, really phenomenal that Google uh, puts out this report because it gives us a window into what the United States government is doing, what the United States government wants to know about users in the U.S. And so uh, you can see that over time, um, the United States government has collected more and more data or requested more and more data from Google on, on users. And they do this not primarily through search warrants um, because we have uh, another bad law in the United States called CALEA that makes it really easy to use a subpoena rather than a warrant, um, which is a much requires much less legal process to get information on people um, for law enforcement purposes uh, construed quite broadly. Um, so governments want this information on people, and and that's a problem not just for software freedom but for freedom. Um, in the United States. Recently, the same process, the subpoena process under the, the bad law, Kalia, um, was used to request information from Twitter on uh, people who were associated with WikiLeaks. Um, they've been fighting this up through the um, through the appeals process, but uh, they've generally been denied by the courts uh, in their attempts to quash the subpoena. So eventually, somebody is going to have access to Jacob Applebaum's direct messages and. I have a hard time believing that Jacob Applebaum was using direct messages to communicate anything um, very sensitive, but um, but of course a lot of people are. Um, so it, this is not an issue uh, just for repressive regimes. This is an issue in you know enlightened Western countries. Although I'm sure that um, not everybody in this room would agree on the enlightenment of the United States. Uh, but I think this, this demonstrates the important point that software freedom really serves the purpose of internet freedom, which serves the purpose of freedom. That software freedom is not an end in itself, um, and that, that what we're trying to get out of free software web services is not just the ability to control the software that we're using, but it's the ability to avoid some really serious problems with the world that the architecture of the web is creating for us. Um, now, I think this presents a really amazing opportunity for free software. Because free software has, has for a long time been defined, you know, whether we like it or not, and most of us don't, by uh, what is happening in the rest of the world of software. It's been defined by catching up to proprietary software that's been leading the way. So from the very moment that, that Richard Stallman first said, GNU's not Unix, we've been defining ourselves, and the world has defined us, by uh, where we stand in relation to particular software. So we, you know, Richard Stallman wanted a free software compiler, so he made a free software compiler. And then he wanted a free software Unix, so he made a free software Unix. And we've always been setting goals that are relative to what the rest of the software world is doing. And I think we're a little self-conscious about that, um, you know, because, you know, th the idea gets out there that we're not an innovative uh, community, that we're not capable of in innovating. Um, and I think that this is a really amazing opportunity for innovation. Um, so uh, for a long time, our goal was the, the year of the Linux desktop, right? And uh, and every year we would say, oh, it's the year of the Linux desktop. And it, you know, it sort of never happened and never happened. And now I think maybe it's happened. Um, you know, I know a lot of people who have no particular interest in free software who are running Ubuntu. Um, and uh, so I think maybe the, the year of the Linux desktop happened sort of around the time it stopped mattering as a goal. Um, so I guess congratulations to us. Um, but um, this, this centralization is, is, I think, the real challenge to free software in the internet age. Um, and, and not just, sorry, yeah, and so it, we, we've been sort of rising to meet this challenge in, in a variety of ways. And I think the, the primary one, or the most interesting one that, that I know about, is uh, uh, Federated Web Services. So uh, StatusNet, I think, led the charge here, um, creating not just 
a Twitter clone, but a service that uh, is built on a a set of um, uh, sorry on an infrastructure for Federation. Um, they sort of figured out how you can run a service that interfaces with other services in a way that no user has to be trapped into a particular instantiation of that service. Um, and, and so they created the OStatus uh, protocol, um, which enables social sharing across sites in a sort of seamless way. Although it's a really hard problem, and I think that we're still working out the details. GNU Media Goblin is, a, is another project that's intended to sort of solve this centralization problem to some extent by creating a federated service that allows you to move easily from one service to another um, and to communicate across services um, and, and won't be locked into a single centralized service. Um, and while I think these are really important efforts at getting at the centralization problem, they're focused on uh, the problem of software freedom um, as we've always understood it as sort of giving people the ability to run their own software, to change and modify their software. But there are a lot of other problems that the centralized structure of the web creates for people, and they're freedom problems more than their software freedom problems, although software freedom is a, is a necessary condition for solving those problems. So I think we have a lot more in infrastructure building to do as a community. Um, we uh, have the opportunity to take a, a structure uh, the infrastructure of the web that's not working for us and to reimagine, I think, how, how uh, services can interrelate to one another in a way that builds freedom back into the web and not just software freedom, but really freedom. So OStatus is a great, is a great step in this direction. It, it begins to solve the problem of centralization by allowing people to move between services. I think another uh, really interesting uh, a really interesting project that that maybe wasn't intended to solve this infrastructure building problem, but moves us in that direction is Firefox Sync, which takes your tabs and your um, browsing history, etc., and syncs them between your devices. But it does so in in a private and secure way um, that you know even if you're using Mozilla's servers, which you don't have to, which is excellent. Um, it's uploading them in an encrypted fashion, and uh, Mozilla can't see what you're doing. I think that's not true anymore. That's not true anymore? Yeah, I think they're, they're sure. changing yeah. that. I believe it is true as of today, mm -hmm. but there's certainly serious talk of changing that. And the reason is that um, there is a belief that it is just not possible to provide the services that people want with those restrictions on what you can see about the data. Right. And it's not possible to provide a usable interface to cryptography that complicated. That is the argument. All right. So Jerv has set out a challenge in this particular space <laughs> that, we can, that we can set about solving immediately in a very concrete way. Um, what, the great thing about the, software, the free software community is that we, have, we can play to our strengths in, in, building this, in rebuilding the infrastructure of the web to enable freedom. We can collaborate. Um, that's what these animals are doing. Uh, they're collaborating. Um, we can work together on this. We are not, we're not companies who are trying to uh, draw walls around, draw lines around our networks and, and, and close users in. Um, we don't need their data. We don't have to advertise to them. And, and so we have, uh, we're not bound by certain constraints that the companies building these systems are bound by. We can work together. We don't need we don't need to get out of centralization the benefits of centralization for advertisers. And yes, this is an advertisement. This this is a uh, illustrating advertising on the web. Um, so uh, so I think this is a really important challenge. I think that we have a really exciting opportunity and I think that we're well positioned in a way that no one else is to solve these problems. But I don't think we're focusing on them. I think that we're focusing on, um, you know, a, a lot of the talk around how we, how we build web services in a free way, um, focuses on the idea that if you don't like what somebody else is doing with your data, you can self-host. And some of us can do that. Although it's hard even for somebody with, uh, some excellent technical skills 
to self-host because security is really hard and keeping your software up to date on your server is really hard. But it's not an answer at all for the less technical people in the world. And, and it's not an answer for us to say, if you don't want software freedom, we're not going to try and give it to you. Because we're not just talking about software freedom, we're talking about people's actual real-life freedom um, to you know, not be oppressed by their governments, for example. And the less free everyone else on the network is, the less free each of us is. Um, so I think there's a certain elitism to the idea that if you want freedom, you can just self-host. Um, and you know, a sort of related uh, answer to the question is, well, even if you can't self-host, at least you can choose which host you're working with, and you can choose someone you trust. But even if you're choosing someone you trust, again, security is hard. And no matter whether that host has the best intentions, they can be exploited. As we've seen in the last week, pretty much anybody, uh, no matter how good their security, is going to get owned one day or another. And so, um, and so even if you trust someone, your data may make it out into the world unless we're taking, uh, taking steps at an infrastructure level to protect that data. And so um, I think we need to move from a focus on just allowing people to use free software to making software that enables freedom um, at a sort of core infrastructure level. And so that is what I have to say. Uh, thank you for listening to me. only the uh, people who distributed their stuff under Creative Commons licenses. The rest I just stole. <laughs> <laughs> What's that? Do you have time for questions? Yeah, yeah, I, I think. Do I? Yeah. Um, I was trying to uh, uh, bring your uh, two points of the presentation together, mm. where you, you mentioned that you know, you've Android, which is the ecosystem that's been taken by, by carriers in the main um, and given that you, the examples of their Firefox and other phones, um, what, 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 what advantage beyond the Federation of Services to talk about would, would, would a phone with Firefox, given the DMCA and the, and the exclusion that it might require? Can we build these phones and these operating systems with legal protections to, to stop this? This proprietary layer being placed on top? Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, I mean, so the GPL is one way to do that. Um, the GPL is, you know, it, it works on phones the same way it works on anything else. Um, in the mobile space, I think uh, people who are writing software have been particularly allergic to the GPL. Um, partly because they're working with extremely conservative uh, partners, uh, including the handset ma manufacturers and also including the carriers. Um, but I don't think that, I mean, as we've seen with the entire history of the GPL, the GPL does not actually prevent anyone from using software if they need it and if it's useful to them. Um, and, and so I think, I think that um, the GPL can begin to answer that question. It can make it you know, GPLv3, for example, would make it just not permissible to lock down the device. But there is not GPLv3 software on probably any of these operating systems. I, I could say a little bit about how we think about these things. Yeah, um, please do. So, um, uh, I, work, I work for Mozilla, but I am now speaking my own opinions and not any official position of Mozilla. Right, I want Firefox OS phones to be free phones, on the, but no one has yet managed to ship, hence the title of this talk, a free operating, free, free, free phone, completely free phone, not even Google, who have tried to do it with their Nexus devices. Right, so we have various things that we are trying to preserve. So, for example, from Gecko on upwards, the phone is free software. Some of the underlying bits we pinch from Android, at the moment, are not. I think at, at Mozilla we have, we believe that your influence is proportional to your market share. And we also know that when we're working with these companies to whom free software is often very new, 
we want to bring some of the way we work to the way they work, um, but we can't do that all at once. And so the first version of Firefox OS, the phone has binary blobs at the driver layer. Uh, it has a binary RIL, for those of you who know what that is, um, and things like that. Um, and we hope we will be able to improve on that situation over time. And I hope that we are making it clear to our partners that that is our direction and our goal. But you, can, you only have a certain amount of leverage in any negotiation, right? The leverage we have is that they want to ship a phone with the Firefox OS brand, but that's it, right? We can't keep the software from them. It's open source. That's the point. They could, they could ship a boot to gecko phone tomorrow without asking us, and that's the way we want it. But that means that we can't just go in and say, if we have these 15 non-negotiable requirements, you have to do them all. Well, if you want to stop lockdown, you can re-license Firefox on a GPLv3 and you'd be fine. Yeah. Except that they probably wouldn't then use it. <laughs> They'd use something else. That's so, the point. The boy, yeah, we're trying to drive the, the mobile industry in an open direction, and particularly in an open web direction, but we're doing it the way Mozilla does things, like which is maybe different to where other people would do it. Extreme didn't exist, and we had to build up resistance, we had four ways. Yeah. Right. No, I, I agree. If, if things continue um, in that mode, if lockdown continues to be the the standard, the mode for how how industry does these things, then I think you're right. We're in the same situation with Firefox phones we're in with uh, Android. I I think I my hope is that the trend toward free software mobile uh, operating systems will begin to the increase interaction between our community and and carriers will break down resistance to open source and will allow um, and and will sort of make the culture a little less uh, prohibitive. But I, that's obviously maybe a naive hope. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Concerning the whole GPL version 3 problem, that's unfortunately not like that code. How about being sort of sneaky and first use GPL version 2, then when we have like 25% market share, <laughs> we license on the GPL version 3? Nothing keeps us from doing that. I yeah. mean, it's an option and it forces like a lot of manufacturers to open up a lot of firms. We're we're I think a ways from there. Although I mean, if, you know, counting Android, obviously we have more than twenty five percent free software market share. I I uh, will not compel anybody from Google to speak on this issue, but I'm I'm pretty sure it's not part of the deployment strategy of Android, and I would guess that it it's not it's not realistically within Mozilla's plans either. But yeah, I mean, you know, eventually. You you could get sneaky. So uh, so I think it's interesting that you put three different things together in your talk, which is one is the the non free phone issue, which you and I helped start. Again, although we didn't do that much work on it, admittedly, but we helped start it, which matters. And then there's this cloud issue, which is important that Chris is working on. And then there's this issue of identity and our our self consciousness about we're always imitating proprietary. Uh, we still have to do that. I, I, my my thought on what I want to ask you is is. Do you think it's okay that we still have to do it? I don't really have a problem with that. I think it's okay that we have to catch up to making Android fully free by doing Replicant. We have to catch up on the web service issues by doing web, uh, Android and so forth. We're actually good at that because we can develop new software. The platforms are different. We don't have as many Java developers in the community to write Android apps and so forth. But it really is the same problem. But the nice part about it is a problem we know how to solve because it's a problem that's solved by writing more free software code under good licenses. So, so I, while I'm a pessimist about it, I think, yes, we still have to play catch-up, we can't innovate. Do you think it's okay that we just yeah. sort of catch up and, and we'll get there eventually? I think that you should take good ideas wherever you find them. Um, my point was not to, not to say that this is a negative thing for our community that we need to stop doing. It's to say that we have an opportunity in, the way, in, in addressing the way the web is structured now and finding solutions to the problems of that structure um, that, that gives us the chance to innovate where nobody else wants to. Oh, I see. Okay. Anybody else? Uh, I was in, interested in the, in the arguments from uh, the MCA. Mm -hmm. uh, why they would allow a smartphone, but they wouldn't allow a tablet uh, <laughs> under the regulations. Um, uh, I gave a couple of reasons, which is that they're institutionally corrupt. <laughs> um, and don't, I mean, it, you know, there is a, there is a heavy resistance toward opening up any new exemptions. Uh, it's a very conservative process, you know, for extrinsic and intrinsic reasons. But, um, the specific reason 
that they gave for tablets was basically that they didn't see uh, how to draw the line between tablets and other computers. I tried drawing one between mobile phones and tablets. Right. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. And so all, I mean, fortunately or unfortunately, the people running the process think of a phone as a phone. Um, whereas with a tablet, they're like, oh, well, this, this blows the doors off. But of course, with a, with a phone, at least you can, you know, it's, it's a device that can communicate with mobile networks. But of course, a tablet, depending on the tablet, can do that as well. So primarily designed to make voice calls. I think there's some language like that in the, in the exemption that they ultimately granted too, that, that is limiting to the mobile handset. Um, I was just saying, this is fine. All we have to do is fit a PCMCIA or other kind of GSM card to our laptops, and right. <laughs> then we're good. And the the mobile I, phone hardware. But is this a handset? Yeah. I make phone calls on my laptop all the time. Yeah. The first time I showed my wife uh, a, a, a tablet, she said it looked like her phone in that Super Mario <laughs> world where everything's too big. That's really my question. How do they determine what the what a smartphone is and what a tablet is, and yeah. what a, especially now with the, the distinction between all the different devices getting smaller. Right. If I insert a, a, some kind of mobile phone or SIM card in my fridge, it will become a phone. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think I, I think the exemption, and I wish I had the language in front of me, but I think the exemption actually does say something about handsets, which I think at some point, you know, a judge will look at you funny if you try and argue that your fridge. Is a handset. Uh, you know, if you get the right judge. I was just, um, just painting an Apple logo on it. That my. Yeah. 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 Anybody else have comments or questions? So, oh, yes. <laughs> sorry, about the, the difference between the phone and the tablet. At least yeah. now they have started to say more, well, it depends on the screen size. If it's more than seven inches, it must be a tablet. Right. Oh, well, now we have phablets, too. Exactly. Yeah. That's the problem now. It's not yeah, I mean, right, and this this unfortunately works against us rather than for us in the DMCA process because they want to limit, and so they'll find ways to limit rather than say, oh, well, we can't take the, tell the difference, so you're right, these are all computers and you should be able to do as you want with them, which is largely our argument. And we, you know, we uh, sort of entered this process, again, expecting to be rejected, but also using it as a platform to say, we should be able to do whatever we want with our refrigerator. Um, but it wasn't specifically about refrigerators. I don't think we even mentioned refrigerators. But. Yes, so yeah. that was my question. Is there any hope that instead of mucking about the exemptions, that you get the entire insanity of the law? Um, you know, I, I, I used to think no hope at all. I think that... Um, I think that the the you know internet and technology community is sort of starting to feel its power. Um, I think SOPA and PIPA, you know, the protests there that prevented those laws from being enacted, um, demonstrated that with the right kind of coordination and on the right issue, um, we can really stop something bad from happening at least. Um, getting legislative change in the other direction, you know, changing an actual law. We're about to test that, I think, with, with Aaron's Law, which is, is the response that some people have been working on and, you know, to, to Aaron Swartz's death and, and um, changing the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act to be less punishing for, you know, rather benign in, infractions. Um, and the DMCA would certainly be, I think, ne next on the list. Uh, on the other hand, you know, with SOPA and PIPA, you had the backing of, uh, you know, software companies and, and hardware companies and, and, you know, basically internet businesses who might not want the DMCA in its current form to, to go away in the same way. So, um, I think there's hope. I, I don't see any immediate movement in that direction. Tom. So you, you brought up a really interesting point, which is uh, the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, which I've been learning more about in light of the tragic events with, with Aaron. Um, but what is really troubling to me is it seems like its application is sufficiently vague that if 
somebody is skilled in designing, let's say, computer software, that they could be the subject of an enforcement under the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, even if there wasn't a specific thing that they did that involved using their computer skill. That seems really broad. Yeah, it's an incredibly broad law. Um, it, it was enacted, you know, in sort of moral panic in response to, you know, the fear of hackers back at, it was in, you know, 1984 was when the law was sort of first, um, you know, signed into law. Um, and, and we didn't have the advocacy community. I mean, the, the FSF was founded that year, I think. Uh, I'm still in 1985. GNU had just been started. The EFF was not a twinkle in anyone's eye. Um, so we didn't have anybody to, to, to fight back against the broad language of that law and, and we're hurting for it now. And I think the same thing really is true of the DMCA, which was, uh, which was enacted in 1998, and I think <coughs> EFF was founded in 99. Am I wrong about that? No, actually, yeah, well, EFF was reconstituted a few times. It was founded, it probably was not active during that period, because right. it was founded in like 93, but then moved, moved and changed its form. And that's what yeah, so we're working in the U.S. with these old laws that predated real activism in you know the internet and software world, and, and they're still hurting us really badly. It's an incredibly broad law, you're right. It's It's been used in, in, uh, you know, it was used against jo uh, George Hotz in the Sony PlayStation 3 hacking case where, you know, he was hacking his own PlayStation. It's, uh, it's, yeah, it, it, it's a problem for us, um, although hopefully they're going to be a lot more, uh, you know, careful it, about enforcement. In how can it be used against Hotz in that surely there's some element of not having permission in the law, isn't it? It's his own computer. How can you not have permission to work on your own computer? Um, I, I don't remember the, the the specifics. I think it might have been how it interacted with... Gabe, do you know anything about this? I believe it was access to networks. Right. It, yeah, so... Yes. You mentioned SOPA. I, I, I wanted to ask you if you... I, I, my theory on SOPA, which may just be one of my crazy conspiracy theories, was that they made it particularly over the top to force a coalition to go against it so that everybody will get excited, defeat it, and then they could introduce something just slightly less bad and nobody would paying attention. Is that, is that just crazy, a crazy conspiracy theory? Do I don't think, that? I think they genuinely didn't see it coming. Um, oh. it, it, uh, SOPA and PIPA started as a single bill called COICA, which um, was sort of being, you know, put forward under the radar, and not a lot of people were paying attention to it. Aaron Swartz was really one of the first people paying attention to it, and drew everybody's attention to it, and and then they sort of like it, it, it fragmented into these two laws to sort of try and hide the ball, say, oh no, it's a different law. Um, uh, from what I hear, uh, people on Capitol Hill, congressmen and their staffers are shell shocked by this and are like, they ask people who come to them with laws related to technology, is this going to be the next SOPA? Yeah, so I, yeah, I think it's really positive. Yeah. Um, could you tell a bit more about the dependencies between um, free software and freedom? So why would um, free software um, provide uh, or guarantee freedom or the other way around? Why couldn't um, proprietary software um, prevent um, guarantees of security? Um, so th there are a couple of answers to that. Bradley would say that proprietary software can never be trusted under any circumstances. I think it's I think it's possible for proprietary software to be secure and to protect users' security. Um, I think there are a couple of, of problems. One is that, uh, or the most significant is really incentives. That that if you're running a centralized network service, um, so the the model the business model of the internet is advertising, and to an extent that I'm not sure we talk about enough. But advertising is really the model. It's, it's Google's model, it's Facebook's model, it's really Twitter's model, right, to the extent that one exists. And, um, and, and so in order to make advertising more effective, which is really the goal, in order to make it more valuable, um, you need access to data. Um, and if that data is encrypted on your servers with a key that you can't that you don't have access to, then you can't mine that data for anything useful. 
And so I think that there, there is a disincentive at, against certain kinds of privacy and security, which is not to say that those services aren't secure in the sense that they're not spilling your data out to, to other people. Um, but there, I think there are ways to build security into the system that are contradictory to the business model of the internet. Um, and, and, but since we as a community don't necessarily care about that business model, um, we have, we have ways, we have ways of working around it. Actually, I would say right now you have two minutes left. I have two minutes left, yes. So, what you're saying now, there's also a problem with the incentive structure of user interfaces. Mm -hmm. um, can you elaborate? So, um, a company like Facebook, um, they're monetizing your data, so they have a strong incentive to encourage you to share more. Yeah. And since they're in control of the user interface, that nowadays is a large part of the control of the decision by a user. Right. Yeah. No, I think that's. I think like, that's absolutely true. And I think that there for are. For a while, email addresses were graphics on Facebook. For a while, <laughs> this is a great example of that. Right. Yeah. And and yeah. And so anti features like the Facebook is sort of the king of anti features, right? They're constantly building things that nobody wants and then throwing them out when everybody freaks out. Um, but that's yeah. The incentives are uh, toward user interfaces that are either you know sort of uh, neutral or harm harmful sometimes. Okay, I think I am out of time. Thank you, Aaron. I think Aaron is such a good speaker. Oh, what's interesting is that listening to it now, um, since it is somewhat, um, you know, it was a, 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 a while has passed, is that a lot more attention has been paid to these issues since then um, in the press. Well, I, I, I've, I don't know about that. I, I think that the press is still paying attention to the issues of the privacy issues perennial. Yeah. Um, the, 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 the cloudy cloud cloud is perennial now. And the idea of mobile devices to, to cloud-based services is sort of an obvious extension to that, which I think was being talked about a lot then and actually a little bit less now, I think. So I, I think it's basically stayed the same. It's just, not, it's just constant onslaught of mm. I guess mobile bullshit, cloud bullshit. Of stuff since then. Yeah, it's yeah. always the same. It's just, it's, it, it's, so I was thinking the other day of just how, how fad oriented uh, technology is, uh, more, more so than a lot of other fields. I think uh, the, the, there's there's this tendency to just be obsessed with whatever the current thing is, as if it's somehow special. I'm reminded of my uh, my advisor asking me, my, my undergraduate advisor asking me, because when I started college, client server was the was the big buzzword. It was <laughs> it was the cloud of its day. I mean, I, people don't like the, the whole industry was smaller then, but it was exactly the same as cloud. Everybody had to say client server and every press release, all this sort of thing. It was it was like that. And I remember my advisor asking me, who was who was sort of my, actually was younger now. <laughs> I scare frighteningly. He was younger then than I am now, but he he asked me because I was sort of like a up and coming student. And he said, he's like, so. I just want to make sure I understand. Client server is when you have, like, everybody's saying this stuff. They just mean you have a server that has some RPC or something that it talks to the client over a network, right? That's all it means. I was like, yeah, that's yeah, all it means. My, my dad actually did that to me with, like, with cloud. He was yeah. like, just so I know. Yeah. It's, <laughs> right? It's, it's, right? There's it's no, nothing. nothing there, right? <laughs> yeah. And, that, and that's the thing is that, and, and the funny part is, is that cloud is just client server after all. Um, it's exactly the same, yeah. just uh, yeah. with faster, with more bandwidth. Right, right. <laughs> and more reliable connections, um, and so and so. I think it's I think it's silly. I mean, the mobile, the, the of course, uh, the Aaron's tying these two things together: the mobile and the cloud and all this stuff, right? But the mobile issue is actually the only thing that's somewhat new because the, these computers that people actually carry around that they don't think of as computers—that is actually a new concept. The idea that people who carry that's around true. computers that don't perceive them as computers—that is that is a change, a terrifying change, but it is change. Uh, because lots of people just don't care about that. I, plenty of people have told me, I don't care if there's free software on my tablet because it's like a disposable device. It's just not, it doesn't matter. It's like free software on my TV. They don't care about, they don't care about the GPL violate on their TV because it's just the TV. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a, it's, it's great marketing because people don't want to have to think about the things that they use as being computers. Computers are something that seems somewhat harder to use. They seem, you know, they're, they're, they're not, 
thought of as consuming devices. Well, and that's what's happened are, is computing has become consumption. Yes. And and that's computing right. is dead. That's the point I've been making. Oh, lately. Bradley. <laughs> computing has become consumption. There, there's and, and the monks actually know what's going on. And no well, there one else is, does. I agree with you that there's sort of like a separation in our, you know, like we sort of the between the consumers and the creators. We sort of have this like increasing gap. And part of it is the way in which people use their devices and how. And that the way, you know, the shift to tablets, you know, pushes away from creating and more towards consumption. The funny part is, is that these people who were upset, and and I would walk around Silicon Valley and and talk to people um, three or four years ago, and they said, oh, yeah, well, within five years, uh, there won't be, it's just everybody's going to be tablets. There won't be you know, the, the average consumer just won't have a computer anymore. Uh, that's definitely not true. That hasn't um, happened yet. <laughs> it's, and it's not going to happen. Um, I, I mean, I, I pointed out that, that in response to that was, well, I can imagine a device that's detachable, which these things have been seen on the market. That yeah. could be the future. Yeah, of, like modular devices is what I was always talking about. Yeah, like the, yeah. the, the laptop, the, the screen clips off and then is a tablet when it's not plugged into its rest of itself. Um, that's disturbing because there's going to be this push for basically not making it a real laptop, making it an Android-based lockdown tablet with all your word processing again are going to be apps. I know the LibreOffice people really want to run on Android because they see this as coming. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, it's probably going to be some little word processing apps and all these little proprietary software. Proprietary software is having a huge resurgence. It's true. And it's related to Aaron saying that, well, they don't like copyleft, but it's more than that. It's this idea that I think, and, and this is about developer liberation in some point, that the boutique development software company is a thing that exists again. That's what drove the proprietary software companies in the early 90s was everybody had a little niche market that they worked in and they were able to run a software development shop with 15 or 20 developers. And I worked for one. I worked for a company that's since like had lawsuits and all sorts of other horrible things happened to it called Dakota Imaging. Uh, Early in my career, I worked there as a software developer and they went for basically a decade and a half. All they did was sell OCR software, mostly to insurance companies that would scan stuff in and enter the data and do verification that the OCR was correct. And they had this proprietary software application that did that. And they stayed in business a long time and sold themselves. Actually, they, they, <laughs> there's a funny story about that. I looked them up uh, not too long ago. It turns out that they sold the company and then tried to steal all the software and all the know-how that they had, like everything. They basically stole everything, tried to hide it, and then shredded everything the night before the sale took place so that they could get the money from the sale and wow. then start another company. That's hilarious. Um, yeah, they, they actually uh, got in serious trouble uh, for that because <laughs> um, yep. there was fraud involved and so forth. Oh, yeah. yeah so. Um, yeah. So, uh, so, but uh, that's. I mean, that's what proprietary people are like, of course. Um, that's the way they think. Um, but anyway, that's that. Those kinds of boutique software shops. Um, I mean, it was. A, it was a. I remember having this debate because I hated working there um, with this Russian developer who was pretty happy and moved out of Russia and gone to work for this little software company. Um, and he really liked it because it was a little shop with just a few developers that you could have a community. And that's the the mobile world has brought that back. That there are lots of these app companies. That they have, you know, 10, 15 developers, little community, making proprietary software program, making money doing it. It's brought that back. You don't have to work for a big software company like you did in the late 90s and early 2000s to be contributing, to, to, to have a development team, a software development team, and to be doing software right. development. And that's, right. that's, I mean, I mean, you could say it's a good thing for developers. They don't have to work for a Google necessarily to be part of it. Wow. But they do, right? Because yeah. they start these little companies that are, that are beholden to Apple and Google to get these yep. apps out there. It's really disturbing uh, where, where computing is going. And I think that the problems are so fundamental that Aaron pointing them out is a year and a half ago, they're still the same. Yeah. And they're just getting worse. Yeah. I don't it's a disaster. With that. I mean, mobile computing is a disaster. Well, it's interesting because Aaron first gave us a comparable talk. When was that? That was a long time ago. OSCON 2011. At OSCON, and it was like... Oh, I'm sorry. No, OSCON 2009. Hugely well... 2009. Yes. Hugely well received. And the messages there were not too dissimilar from the... I mean, we encouraged him to give an updated version of his talk this time. I keep banging on the table. I also was checking my phone to see that... Uh, to make sure that my ringer was off and... And then caused a big thunk. No, that's fine. Yeah. 
Uh, I, I I checked to make sure the mic switch was on and it made a noise. I'm sure. Yeah. So uh, so I, I mean I I, I think I think that. The, I mean, Aaron doesn't have any solutions to propose, which I don't blame him for because none of us do. There are no solutions. This is just the where we're heading. I mean, I think the best thing. Well, actually, there are some solutions. Support Replicant as a project and mm-hmm, help. Mm-hmm. Um, I think RMS obsessively saying reverse engineering. He's right that reverse engineering is the most important skill we need in the free software community now because the companies will not provide us with specs and it's gotten worse and worse. And the, as, as things become CPUs inside of CPUs it, and peripherals having their own CPUs, it's not just a video card anymore. It's everything. Right. And reverse engineering and building software, building our own software around the hardware that we have is going to become really necessary for the future of free software. You put your dog to sleep. Yeah, well, he was already <laughs> asleep. So, um, so, uh, so hopefully people like this. If, if at some point people decide they don't want to hear these old recordings, although we're nearly done. I think we're almost done, yeah. Uh, got a couple more. But, uh, but, and, and we got to figure out what to do about 2014. Yeah, and we got to figure out what to do about 2014. I think people are just so excited that we're releasing episodes again. They don't really care. I think that's actually the majority listener. I'm I'm really We glad. lost listeners too by We did lose listeners by being away for so long. But by picking up a new regular schedule and by talking about interesting things, we'll regain some I guess we should up. tell people that they need please, to please promote our listeners. show. Yeah. I, I mean and the thing is is that <laughs> if we're, you like it, if you think we're it's seeing worthwhile. counts of a thousand to twelve hundred unique IPs downloading the audio. That's how I always count it is how many unique IPs downloaded the audio. And it's somewhere between nine hundred and twelve hundred. Um, we, we don't make this joke about three listeners anymore. It, it, I mean, there are episodes, uh, there's specific episodes that got up to 4,000. Allison Chaikin's episode did really well. I think she promoted her own episode very uh-huh. heavily, which is good. I think she had like 3,000 or something. Yeah, downloads. yeah. Um, and so we have to have Allison Chaikin on again because apparently she, she promotes her show very, show, the show that she's on very, very well. So Allison, if you want to help us out, you can promote the shows that you're not on as well. That'd be awesome. Um, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> and and uh, I, mean, I, I mean, I think that I'm, I'm still committed to, if we have 1,000 people down this thing every two weeks absolutely i'm still committed to doing it it's for well a thousand worth people. it yeah if we drop to half that i have to start to question yeah the value. I, I agree with that so so but then it's it's interesting i mean we travel to a conference where we'll we'll give a speech to half that number true but then yeah there's other things anyway what yeah. i'm saying is keep listening stay classy san diego <laughs> Reason Freedom is produced by Dan Lynch of Pod Factory and can be found at podfactory.org. Thanks to Mike Tarantino for our theme music. This episode of Reason Freedom is licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 United States license. You can follow Reason Freedom, Bradley, and Karen on Identica and also read Bradley's and Karen's blogs. Links can be found on the Reason Freedom website, faith.us. That's f a i f.us. Wait, 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 before you...